I want to welcome everybody tonight. Uh, good evening. This is a remarkable turnout for the Bad Talks. We have a, obviously a compelling topic here, which um, was actually suggested by Colin, one of our presenters. And uh, I would like to add that that's the way we like to receive topic ideas. So if any of you have a thought about a future topic, please send it our way, badtalks.com. And I am Paul Wright. Uh, from Cochran Wright and Hague and John Kilfoyle of United Marble Fabricators. Uh, we are the sort of founders and sponsors of this event and it makes me very proud to see such a distinguished group here. So welcome um, and without further ado, I'm going to ask Ted to take it away. Okay, we have a uh, few seats up front and there's some premiums seats along the uh, edges here uh, where you can see everything and hear us very clearly, I think. I'm Ted Landsmark. I am a professor at Northeastern and uh, head of the Dukakis Center on uh, Urban and Regional Policy. I'm a public policy guy. Um, <coughs> Some of you know me as the President Emeritus of the Boston Architectural College. Um, we have a fabulous panel. We want to get right into it. Um, you pretty much know who they are, but I'm going to ask them in to introduce themselves as they are speaking. Um, and we're going to start with the originator of the idea for this uh, panel. Colin, you're on. Thanks, Ted. Uh, we're really pleased to have you as the moderator tonight, so thank you very much. Uh, I, I think, as many of you might know, I'm super passionate about modern houses, and particularly mid-century modern. Um, and I'd like to start with uh, a little bit of a story as to how I got around to this topic tonight. I'm originally from California, and so that's drawn me annually for the past 10 years to Southern California, to Palm Springs, that the annual Modernism Week, um, which is a celebration of the community of architects, um, clients, and builders who have built thousands of modern houses, and a couple of them are shown here. Um, and so that's really been my touchstone as, as, as uh, my passion in architecture. Now, a couple years ago, I was out at Modernism Week, actually with Adolfo Perez, who's here tonight. And I attended a lecture by a professor uh, at Cal Poly. And the lecture was on the great modern houses of Massachusetts. And I was a bit chagrined and realized that I really hadn't, in my own mind, knitted together all the wonderful homes that our firm has had a chance to renovate um, and recognize that, that the homes in Massachusetts, the modern homes, are also part of a movement part of a community of, of, uh, that really starts with Walter Gropius um, at, in the Bauhaus. So, and I think modern houses really came to Massachusetts in the late 30s, um, and they came partly the result of a dinner party that Helen Starrow gave and Walter Gropius attended. Uh, so Helen Starrow, whose family uh, Starrow Drive was named after, is a great philanthropist. She was so taken with the ideas of Walter Gropius, who was then teaching at Harvard, having been sort of kicked out of Germany by the Nazis, uh, 
um, she gave him a plot of land in Lincoln, and she loaned him the money to build the iconic Gropius house. So I think, um, again, it speaks a bit to the idea that there needs to be community for this sort of thing to happen. Um, and Gropius' wife, Issei, uh, was, a, was a wonderful writer, and she described it this way. Uh, Walter and I tried to rent a small house in Lincoln, one of the three towns that had been the site for the first battle for independence. So for the Gropiuses, freedom meant being able to build a modern house in the philosophy of the Bauhaus, free of Hitler's fascism. Um, so next is, I'd like to show the Gropius house on the bottom and Neutra's Miller house on top to give you a bit of an idea of what was going on on two opposite sides of the country within a year of each other. So the Neutra house at the top, or the Grace Miller house, is a single story, very simple, white, uh, plain, no ornament, which is, has quite a bit in common with the Gropius house. The difference being that it really resembles much more the southwestern model of an adobe, single floor, concrete slab, in contrast to the Gropius house, which is really, in some ways, modeled after the center entrance colonial. So if you go to the next picture. So Gropius came up with the idea of a two-story box, very much in the same concept of, of a um, colonial center entrance, although he kind of made that interesting canopy. And Gropius didn't just use the forms of tradition, he, he used a lot of the material. So the house is clad in wood, which would have been very different from Germany. Um, and it is also used white brick, and then the, the retaining walls are just a natural farmer's fieldstone type of wall. Now, that is, so I, I guess would want to add one other thing, is that this house, the Gropius house, was such a revelation that the Igor Stravinsky, the um, composer, was married in Cambridge and within an hour of his wedding ceremony completed, drove with his new bride out to see this extraordinary modern house, really the first modern house that, that anyone had seen in eastern Massachusetts. Now, while Gropius did use a lot of the materials and forms of traditional New England architecture, he used them in innovative ways um, that didn't always work well. So for example, um, actually we just keep, we hold on to that last slide for a second. Um, starting at the roof, um, water penetrated the top of the walls because of an incorrect flashing at the parapet. Instead of horizontal uh, siding, he ran it vertically so water was running down the seams and then it was getting, and then at the, at the head of the windows, they, they were not properly sloped or flashed, so water got into the walls. And by the time Simpson, Gumperts, and Hager designed the renovations to the house, the house was nearly falling down. And it's an interesting contrast. My own home in Cambridge was built 10 years before the Gropius house and still retains its original windows, its original cladding, original roofing. So there, there were challenges that, that modernists had in terms of the durability of the homes. So I'd like to go ahead. The next slide illustrates what I call modernism 2.0. And this is um, the architect Henry Hoover, who really was a contemporary of Gropius. 
he started by, by designing flat roofs as well with no overhangs. Here, he's really, I think, adapted to our climate by with, with uh, pretty substantially uh, sloped roofs and substantial overhangs to shed the water away from the building. And as a result, the vertical cladding that you have here has, has lasted really well. In fact, that's the original cladding to the house. The other kind of wonderful innovation that Hoover had was because so many of the flat lots were now gone, the, he's now worked dealing with hilly sites. So you notice the carport is a full floor level below the main level of the house. And there's that sort of wonderful stair that weaves its way up the contours of the land. I can jump to the next one. Um, this is really one of my favorite uh, pictures of a Hoover house um, that we had the great pleasure to restore. That's the, what you see on the far right and through the window is the entry stair coming down to the front door. And what's so, I think, exceptional about the house is that he's really so in tune with nature. And that, that stair, which has been there for uh, 60 years, is only touches that rock with a couple small drill holes. It's otherwise beautifully intact. So you, one could imagine removing the house and stair, and the site would look as it had never been touched. And I think we have one more. Um, it is, yes. Um, so finally, uh, another really favorite uh, picture of mine, I think, is the connection to house to nature. I love, even though um, Henry Hoover was trained by a landscape architect after leaving the architecture department at Harvard, his landscapes are so natural. And rather than formal gardens or, <clears throat> or lawns, we really have ferns and mountain laurels. And, and, and arching uh, birch trees that just beautifully tie the house to the land. So I'd love to have Katie have a few comments. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I'm always curious about the technical details and what have been you know, some challenges and successes in your practice, particularly working into the Henry Hoover houses. Sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, the Henry Hoover houses, um, the, well, the overhangs that I mentioned are a really big help. And we haven't found much deterioration to the, the envelope of the house. The biggest challenge that we've had, and I think David can speak to this a little bit as well, is that the houses have our concrete slab on grade, typically. And that's a very big challenge, because even if the house <clears throat> is heated to 70 degrees on the inside, if your feet are cold, you're going to be miserable. So one of, the, one of the things that in each of the homes that we've renovated of his, we've wound up putting in a radiant, um, thin radiant um, loop on top of the existing concrete slab to make it manageable. Um, actually, one, I'll, I'll tell you, one, one, one story I love about uh, Moon Hill, which was a, one of the gropius developments, is I, I went to I was looking with a client at, at a house and there there was a builder along and the builder told me you know Colin if you ever see a wood burning stove in one of these houses you got to run away because it means that they could never figure out how to heat the house um, this house had three wood burning stoves so. <laughs> so Katie share your interests um, if I could borrow the the clicker I can run through. Thank you. I um, 
also love mid-century modernism, and I love thinking about the context of the mid-century modern moment here in Massachusetts. As Colin mentioned, after World War II, Gropius and others decamped um, to Cambridge and brought with them the tools and tactics of European modernism, and then they educated this whole new generation of architects. These people lived and worked generally in a westward trajectory from Cambridge out towards and beyond Gropius's own home in Lincoln. Um, and this territory, of course, had seen big visionary movements before. Of course, 200 years earlier, the American Revolution, and 100 years earlier, the Transcendentalists, that loose group of romantics and environmentalists and progressives, including Thoreau, who put Walden Pond on the map, just a stone's throw from Gropius's home. What I find really fascinating is that in addition to building high-profile, beautiful custom homes, these architects also built in bulk. The dark dots on the screen show mid-century modern master plan communities of about 10 to 100 homes each. And I love that these weren't just profit-generating endeavors. They were, in fact, utopian experiments because Architecture was viewed in moral terms and expected to form and reform ways of living. Um, I can't help but see that this centennial cycle of big visionary thinking is all connected. My friend, the historian Dana Robat, the founder of FOMA Lincoln, tells a beautiful anecdote of Gropius having fled the Nazis and Konstantin Pertsov having fled the Re Russian Revolution. Um, both attending town hall meetings in Lincoln just to observe the spectacle of democracy. I think that's so beautiful, and you know, that's, that is the native habitat of this landscape that we can only hope to enhance. Um, but back to the architectural language of modernism. <clears throat> we have material honesty. We have concise forms, forms that follow function, and beautiful inside-outside connections, a theme that, in my opinion, gained great traction once modernism hit American soil and this vast land and legacy of transcendentalism. Um, there is an enduring interest in technology and a commitment to structural clarity. So that language of modernism is clearly articulated in these utopian communities and compounded by the moral imperative that sought to democratize space at a community and domestic level. So at a community level, common land in these master plan communities was often set aside for joint use, like a pool, field, woods. This is Peacock Farms in Lexington. Um, you can tell there's beautiful site planning and a lovely, sensitive treatment of the land that builds on currents of democracy, the picturesque English landscape tradition, where visual access, like I can see my neighbor's garden from my yard, um, creates a shared amenity. And this concept is codified often in architectural guidelines and um, charters that limit things like fences that would obstruct views in the landscape. This intentionally blurs property lines. And this is really different from neighborhoods at that time. You can see in the image on the left, Peacock Farm Road runs, it's the squiggly road, and it abuts an older neighborhood with rectilinear streets and regularized property lines. So I, I love that. 
And at a domestic level, these bulk building architects had an eye for economy. And one tactic they employed was to cluster wet program at a core. Um, and that's in a, a red box. So that pulled the kitchen to the center of the house and made women's work right at the middle of the living space. Another tactic they employed was kind of minimizing private spaces. So the bedrooms are shown in yellow. And that pulled children out of their traditional nurseries and again into the family realm. So women and children were really invited into the best spaces of the home. This original configuration of a peacock farmhouse shows the kitchen in its initial configuration and it's, it's walled off. There were like 50 something of these homes and over time some people have broken down the walls from the kitchen to the adjoining rooms. So we're still evolving. Um, as an anecdote in our practice, we often get requests to like put the wall back up because you're sick of looking at the dishwasher from your couch. Um, this intersection of economy and technology, I think I just like love this diagram by the architect Carl Koch. He was a real Buckminster Fuller style visionary and he designed this house that's deployable and the exterior walls kind of like cuddle up around that wet core and the house can be moved from site to site. So I see in these communities and projects all of the visionary threads of the Massachusetts landscape coming together. Um, one more historic thing, I took just a few more slides. This is the Browns Woods Charter from 1953 and it's entitled A Call to Better Living. I'll read from the blurry note cards, the founders sought to foster an atmosphere which will encourage individual initiative, the exchange of ideas and independent thought. So it's really lofty goals and I see in this language a clear relationship to the local thinkers of 100 years prior of Emerson writing of every reading man having a draft of a new community in his pocket. And this is where we in, in our practice find ourselves working often into uh, mid-century modern spec homes in these utopian communities while we try to solve clients' big and small problems. A recurring big problem like Colin mentioned is performance. This is an original window detail sheet and the bottom left drawing shows a gutter at the interior windowsill to channel away inevitable condensation from the windows. <laughs> um, so, you know, 60 years later, we can do better, but we have to be inventive to reach that higher level of performance while maintaining the clear sight lines, lightweight assemblies, and crisp corners, and at all costs, avoiding OG profiles. Contending with slim roof assemblies, we have to shore up structural performance. Given minimum cavities, we need to meet or better exceed our values. I can answer lots of questions about this later if you want. Um, and we need to make double-paned glass as elegant as the crystal clear expanses of single-paned glass originally installed. Smaller day-to-day -day problems stem from these bulk building architects' eye for economy and just people having a lot less stuff 60 years ago and different expectations for service spaces, closets, bathrooms, kitchens, mudrooms. So in this recent project of ours, a slim addition created a real foyer, new cabinets, uh, custom cabinets divide space, provide material warmth, and do a great deal of workhouse storage for the household. Tiny bedrooms often need to get expanded. Bathrooms always need to be totally gutted. Um, so in doing all these updates, we really take our charge seriously to enhance 
and not degrade those most important features of modernism that in our New England setting so enhance the natural habitat. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> David? You're up. Am I You're up. Oh, I'm up. Oh. You're up. Okay. Uh -huh. Well, <laughs> thank you. So um, I I'm here because uh, I'm the guy that takes them apart, puts them back together, and I found everything that they're talking about tonight, I think I found, and I have a few slides on that. Um, I was approached uh, about 13 years ago by a woman, she's not here tonight, Karen Clark. She's a co-chair of um, interior design at Suffolk University. And uh, she gave me a call and I had just um, relocated from Nantucket and uh, she said, would you come by and look at this? And I said, sure, it sounds pretty easy to me. And uh, it wasn't really that easy. Um, <laughs> you know, I, <clears throat> I, I come up and I look at the project and she says, well, you know, it's a Hoover house, and I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine, and there's a lot of preservation, and, and the grandchildren are involved, and there's a lot of movement behind this, and I learned as we go. Um, and she also said, so I want to renovate it, and I also want to make it LEED certified. And I was like, wow, you know, that's, that's a, a tall task. So anyway, so looking at it, it's like, okay, I don't think it looks that bad, and, um, you know, we're looking at it, walking around the outside, and the plaster was all on, and I said, yeah, I think it's, it's not that bad. And I think like every homeowner, they think, oh, I think it has good bones, and, you know, we go and we find out that it's really, it's, it's what you talked about, right? I mean, it's like they're just, there's major flaws in the flashing, and, and, and it just, this is 50 years of neglect or deferred maintenance, and it just became uh, pretty obvious then we kept stripping it back, and you know we see these big uh, open areas on the bottom that, you know, they're they're not supported. Um, they used uh, probably one by eight or one by ten lateral uh, for sheathing, and I mean, if you look at it, it looks really sketchy. Um, <laughs> even even on both sides, it just I, I was I wasn't sure how it was standing up. Obviously, we threw up some bracing. Um, it stayed up, and um, anyway, we worked with it. Um, the, uh, this is located in Lincoln, and the building department is probably 300 yards away. And uh, so um, the building inspector, I invited him up, and I said, look, I'm into this project. I, I want to I do it right. And so he, he wasn't as excited as, as everybody else was about this. So we ended up doing a lot of um, LVLs and a lot of floors. Um, this one here, um, because of current codes, I mean, it's... It's different now, and next thing you know, we're, we're, we're adding beams and we're cutting floors and things like that. And, um, one thing I have to say, is, is, and I have to give uh, Karen a lot of credit, because if, if you're undertaking something like this, you have to have a lot of patience, and you have to have a commitment to doing it, and you have to have a lot of money, because every time you turn around, there's something that's happening with this. Um, this one here, um, we talked a uh, Colin talked a little bit about the heat. I, I don't know if you can see it that well. But what I found is under the slab, it's the copper tubing that was run throughout the whole thing, thinking that would be the, a great idea for radiant heat. And, and obviously, over time, that doesn't work so well. But the other thing that happens, too, is that there's no thermal break here. And what happens is they warm up the slab, and it migrates underneath the windows. And the windows literally are this, this a sill. And there becomes puddles outside. So it melts outside, and it's heat warm inside, and, the, and it just rots the sills away. And it's just, I mean, it's 
it's not a good idea. So anyway, <laughs> so we took all that out and we did a combination of hydro air and, um, and radiant floor um, throughout it because the radiant is obviously a supplemental heat and the, radi uh, and the, um, the hydro air was more of the primary heat. So we went through and did that. The other thing we did, um, again, uh, the inspector down the street um, wanted, you know, the uh, fireplaces protected and things like that. So we went, went around and modernized um, or, or made it up to code. And then, um, so it, it turned out it, it's very close to what it was. The overhangs are there. I mean, we rebuilt all that. And then, um, you know, here's, here's the back elevation. There's some things that are different. Um, obviously, you see that tower on the side there. There's a rail there. You wouldn't have seen that before, but it's because of codes. We needed to do uh, slight modifications like that. But um, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience, and I, and, and, and I sort of, like, um, become very fond of doing um, some modern stuff. We've, we've been fortunate enough to do a, uh, work with Colin in the several projects with Colin on more modern structures, and I think we've learned a few more things than what they have here. So anyway, that's, that's what I have to offer tonight. Okay. So um, I, I wanted to make sure that we heard from uh, Dan, who is at uh, Skinner's Auction House, which um, uh, has supplied a lot of uh, uh, the interior material in um, a home that I own. Um, these houses, as well as being uh, unique and innovative in this part of the world in terms of their building, um, were also quite unique and innovative in terms of uh, the way they were furnished. Um, the Marameco and the uh, Northern uh, European uh, furniture styles uh, began to appear uh, to a much greater extent uh, through DR and um, other retailers. Um, and now a lot of that material is ending up on the marketplace. Um, uh, more perhaps than in almost any other part of the country that I can think of. Um, and it has risen substantially in value. So uh, you want to talk about how the homes were furnished and what sure, you now find? Sure, sure, sure. So I think we can take it back to the Bauhaus and as Gropius and Breuer landed at Harvard. You also had Maholi Nagy and Van der Rohe landing out at, in Illinois at ITT. And at the same time, you had Annie and Joseph Albers down at Black Mountain, and uh, Saarinen was at Cranbrook. But more importantly, it's um, the students of these institutions who were being taught by the Bauhaus leaders who ultimately came to be the household names and furnishings and uh, furniture and furnishings. So um, specifically, uh, going into the next slide, this is, this is kind of the who's who of mid-century modern furniture. So Ben Thompson came out of tech. He opened uh, design research in Harvard Square, and uh, Noel Miller, lots of Danish modern, Marameco out of Finland. This, these were his furnishings. So the homes at Gropius and were basically building and architecting out in Lincoln. I like to call it the Cambridge diaspora, right? You can start in Cambridge and work your way in an envelope out to Lincoln 
and um, there's a lot of material in those homes. At the same time, the people that were buying those homes, having those homes built, um, are all entering into retirement age, they're downsizing, they're moving on, they're handing over the homes to new owners, and folks like you are starting over with the homes, uh, but the furnishings within the house end up with us for auction. So um, these are probably some of the leading names um, certainly uh, Herman Miller with uh, George Nelson, uh, Ray and Charles Ames, Osama Noguchi, just to name a few, and Florence Knoll, who came out of Cranbrook, and she really had the stable of designers. You know, you're either Knollites or you're, you're Millerites, right? <laughs> and I find that, and then, and then you have the Danish modern run. Um, it's almost like the hard sciences, the real engineering types, they love their null. Uh, the um, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, they love their Danish modern. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy there. At the same time, Singer and Sons was pulling design out of Italy. So you had Gio Ponti, Eco and Luisa Parisi, they would um, come up with the designs. The pieces would be handmade uh, by component, assembled in Italy, and then they came over to Singer. And he employed Bertha Schaefer, who would kind of bring the pieces that would pull it all together. Um, so Ponti would make this you know, really cool coffee table with the stiletto heel legs, and Bertha would make the sideboard that went with it. You know. So uh, here locally, uh, Paul McCobb is a, is a big name. He was out of Planner Group in Winchenden. Uh, his material is consistently coming on the market. So I would say if you're uh, looking to furnish a 20th century home and, um, or, or an apartment and you're on a bit of a budget, maybe the McCobb is where you start and uh, you work your way up to Singer and Null. Uh, directional was Vladimir Kagan, Paul Evans, and Paul Evans kind of brought in the, um, and I'm going a little ahead of myself here. We'll stick with the logos. <clears throat> and lastly, Dunbar, which was a little, maybe not as edgy, uh, but you had Ed Edward Wormley who did a lot of good design work there. So if you look at one of our 20th century design sales, the bulk of the mid-century section of those sales is kind of dominated by these makers here. And a good majority of the Miller and Knoll was purchased at Design Research. So the next few slides will kind of run through some of those mid-century icons as far as furniture goes. Um, again, with, the, with a look back to Bauhaus. Uh, if we look at the first slides, you have um, the Marcel Breuer Vasili chairs. These are vintage, you know, a lot of this material is still being made today. The uh, vintage pieces will bring more than the later pieces. So in this case, a pair of vintage Breuer Vasili chairs would bring about $2,000. And then the Van der Rohe for Knoll um, MR chairs also for, you know, a set of six, is gonna bring you about $2,000. Here's another classic, 
We're watching a movie uh, over the weekend. Two of these Jorge Ferrari Hardoy Knowles in the living room in the uh, Sydney Portier layout on the set. So uh, these makers were good at working their pieces, you know, using Hollywood to get those pieces out in the sets. And people watching it would be like, oh yeah, we need those, right? The iconic Ames lounge chair for Herman Miller. Again, vintage pieces would bring more than a piece that you'd pick up at design research and then it doesn't work for you and you're trying to uh, design within reach, pardon me. Ames shell chairs, they made a million of them, right? These two are early, they've got the rope edge, they've got the X-base, original uh, rubber mounts. Um, a pair of those, 800, and the rocking chair with the Eiffel base, also 800. So the early, these are second generation chairs, um, you know, they'll, um, not as abundant as the later 70s production. Um, Georgia Nakashima, um, I think most people, I think I saw a slide earlier that had a Nakashima bench in it. Um, so George bounced around. Um, for those of you not familiar with the story, um, Japanese American uh, living in the Pacific Northwest. He ends up being interred during World War II. He meets up with a Japanese traditional carpenter joiner while he's uh, uh, doing his time. Um, ultimately, the architect who he worked for sponsored him and backed his release. He worked for Knoll, he worked for Whittacombe, and then ultimately he set up his own shop down in New Hope, Pennsylvania, and uh, his daughter Mira today continues the tradition by building on his designs. So this is where kind of Bauhaus, good manufacturing design, manufacturing techniques for mass production intersect with studio. And, um, you know, you would go down, you would meet with George, you'd pick out your slab, he'd put the slab against the wall, and he'd say, I'll call you when it's ready, and then you'd go down. Um, I think the um, coffee table on the left retailed for $800. Uh, we sold it last year for 25000 the bench on the right retailed for 1600. We sold that a year ago for 55,000. Okay. So he's kind of the top of the mid-century market. <laughs> uh, you know, but Wendell Castle, Wharton Escherich, these secondary studio makers are starting to work their way up into, into the mix as well. Um, Vladimir Kagan was in the directional stable. This is his cloud sofa. Uh, we had one of these in the last sale. Um, you know, the, reasonable at $4,000, I would say. And then Harry Batoya's classic, you know, wide leg bench down on the lower right. So we couldn't go without mentioning some Danish modern with Hans Wegner. You've got the Papa Bear chair in the upper left and his valet chair in the lower right. Johannes Hansen did his production uh, distri in distribution in the United States. 
a good vintage Papa Bear chair is in the five, $6,000 range, and the valet chair is rare, and this one was in very good condition, and it sold for $10,000. What do we have now? Oh, so we're back. Uh, Singer and Sons. You've got uh, Eco and Luisa Parisi in the upper left. Note the uh, kind of the stiletto heel legs. Um, and down on the lower right, that is a Gio Ponte flip top table. So it's a console for these kind of smaller, neater spaces without as much clutter in them. You pull it off the wall, you flip the top, and you have your dining table. I think these at the time, the, the Parisi coffee table was $15,000. The Ponte table was $9,000. In addition to furniture, we'll do some artwork, um, at least anything I can hide from the fine art department until the sale. Uh, so the upper left is Joseph Albers' homage to a square. Uh, this was a 10 print set, I think issued in the late 50s, early 60s. For the complete set, in excellent condition, was $25,000. And then the lower right is uh, Le Corbusier when he was in his, uh, his Picasso face. This is just a print, but $1,000, you know, $1, uh, limited edition, I think there was 125 of them, um, but you know, goes along with the furnishings in addition to the furniture. So we'll take it right down to the silverware. Um, these are Jens Quisgart for Dansk. This was a 105-piece set with bamboo handles. Uh, retailed in the early 60s. Um, it's good Danish modern design. Right? Sleek, excellent, 2300. And then in the lower right, um, what do we have here? Oh, <laughs> so again, in the Cambridge diaspora, a lot of KLH stereos come up. <laughs> this was Henry Close's first effort uh, in before Boston Acoustics and everything else. Vinyl is back, and people are clamoring for these uh, stereo systems uh, in their, for their new homes today. So, so I think, for the tie-in, for my angle, you know, you guys, the next generation of buyers are coming into these classic mid-century homes. They're coming to you to re-architect, redesign, rebuild, and then when it comes time to furnish them, really this material is just coming right back from the original owners and can end up right back in those homes that they're in to start with. Great, thank you. Yes. So. I won't need that. You won't need that. <laughs> um, we have a lot of folks here um, and a lot of questions. But before we get into specific questions, um, I'm going to ask, given the breadth of what we could cover, um, in general terms, what is it that you, you want to make sure this panel covers? And by that, I mean we could talk about the Bauhaus and its influence. Uh, we could talk about uh, regional stylistic differences, what differentiated what went on in New England, for example, from what went on on the West Coast or even on the Cape. We could talk about technical aspects 
of restoring these homes. I spent a couple of years uh, at the American College of the Building Arts down in Charleston <coughs> teaching preservation artisanry. And the hardest houses for preservationists to work on at this moment are these mid-century modernist houses in part because uh, they were beautifully designed, not always well constructed, and they often used innovative materials um, which are either no longer available or have proven to be unsuitable um, for the conditions that they face. We can talk about the cultural factors, that is to say, um, why did designs work the way they did? Why were there community greens, for example, rather than individual uh, backyards? So just quickly, what are the broad subjects you want to make sure we cover before you start asking your specific questions? Anyone? Otherwise, we'll just plunge in. Yes, ma'am. Were those developments developed because they were expecting this huge group of people coming back from World War II? Uh, the modern homes? Okay, so some, some class issues and some issues, some questions around um, who these were really being built for. Yes. Okay, other folks? Yes. Where the market for modern architecture is going and how huh. that relates to renovations and new construction. Okay, so where is, where is the market going at this moment? Where is the interest as opposed to the- Are people restoring or just thinking the houses are too small and they're or, now tear downs? Or they like them as they drive by, but they don't buy them, they buy the colonial right. instead. Okay, mm. anyone else? Yes? I'd be interested in talking about the, uh, the, the balance between uh, regionalism and universal design. Wh ah. What are we seeing in New England uh, because of regionalism as compared to the universal design concepts that came out of the West. Right, and also how does that staircase deal with universal design issues today? Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, environmental factors. Mm -hmm. And then one last, there was a hand. Yes. I'm just curious to know if you think that it's important to the integrity of the Bauhaus to furnish it with those furnishings that would be from that period. Or are you seeing innovative ways to furnish those style homes now that, that add to it? Okay. You folks have questions of each other? You already started one. <laughs> okay. Um, who wants to start in terms of some of the general questions? Let's start with some of the uh, environmental and universal design questions. Okay. So the technical aspects around the buildings, things like the beams going from inside to outside, that particular issue has not 
proved to be problematic. Um, there are, you know, 50, 60 of those peacock farmhouses that all have about 24-inch roof overhangs and big 4 by 12 or 4 by 10 or 8 beams going through. And apart from woodpeckers boring into the blunt end, um, that hasn't been a, a problematic point. And I think to Colin's point, that is because of those really deep roof overhangs and how high up that connection is, you know, it's just tucked right under the roof. So it doesn't see a lot of weather. Um, and and in, in our experience, those homes are from, you know, the 50s, early 60s. That's quite a bit after the late 30s, early 40s when um, I think those folks had learned their lesson probably. Um, so, so that one is not problematic. Um, I think windows and cavity insulation are our biggest technical environmental challenges. Yeah, I would, uh, one of the big challenges that, that we see is this uh, single paned plate glass <clears throat> that is crystal clear yeah. and has this uh, beautiful connection between inside and out. It, and on top of that, the, the, it has typically a steel frame around it that's very thin in profile. And it's just, it's almost heartbreaking to take that out um, because you really lose with a double or triple pane glass. You don't get, particularly at night, that the house, the glass is no longer transparent. It's that connection between inside and out just doesn't work nearly as well. Um, the flip side, of course, is the energy issue around those windows. Um, but we've, so we've done really both um, pretty successfully. Um, and an argument can be made that that um, as long as you're sealing uh, for any air gaps, you, you can be, with south-facing glass, okay with a single pane. Um, but it is really tough to tear out that type of kind of iconic feature. Mm -hmm. Is it legal to do a direct glaze single pane? Or white coat? Yeah, that, that's interpreted, uh, we've found, by building inspectors on a case-by-case -case basis. <laughs> but it would not be permitted in a new house. No, that's right. That's right. Who, who uh, bought, the, to answer two questions at once, who bought these houses initially? I mean, it sounds like a lot of professionals in this part of the world who were emerging uh, late 50s into the 60s, um, early baby boomers and, and uh, their parents. Um, who bought these houses then and who's buying them now and what, what is happening to them? So from my experience, from a then perspective, um, it was typically uh, these homes are coming from engineering, people with engineering backgrounds, people with um, involved in kind of the creative arts backgrounds. Um, it's not your typical three-bedroom ranch with a hallway, you know. These, um, these were professors at Harvard, professors at MIT. Um, this morning I was in the home of a woman who ran a, an advertising business. You know, th these were creative people seemed to have these homes originally. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's buying them now. But. Yeah. Well, and, and so it wasn't Levittown. I mean, people, even though communities were being built, they were not being built with uh, uh, VA funds uh, from uh, uh, people who had uh, come out of the Second World War and were looking for 
inexpensive housing. Um, these bulk-built communities that I was talking about were. Um, I, there are people who can answer this question better, so forgive my terminological gaps, but um, my understanding is that these neighborhoods were geared to be very affordable. So, you know, the, the point of entry was quite low. And as a result, I don't think in neighborhoods like Peacock Farms, the tech-built communities, Browns Woods, the kind of like, uh, I guess like lower end homes, it wasn't design aficionados. It was people who just wanted land and a, an inexpensive home in which to raise their family. But I think a unifying feature of the people who bought the homes initially was a liberal mindset we have um, come across a number of like initial early settlers, and they always relay anecdotes of, um, you know, in Lexington it was a Republican-leaning town, but there were these like blue dots on the census tract in these mid-century modern homes. Um, and I also know that it was much harder to get a mortgage for um, a modern home than it was to get a mortgage for a traditional home at that time, and that was. Um, at a time when you know the federal government was beginning to back mortgages, so it was like a shifting landscape of financing, and I'm not super well versed in it, but um, that's what I know. Okay. I, I, I guess what I'd add is um, I think our our clients are um, people that have already had a home, that own a home, and they sort of want to move up or move some, something different. And I think that I, I find that like as we have here, people want. People want light and glass, and I think that that's really appealing to them to to be able to you know have a, a big expansive piece of glass, so they're feeling like they're enjoying the outside, and so it's it's people that I think that have already gone through that traditional home, and they're saying you know now it's time to move and do something different, and and they're typically younger, but you know they're they're pretty well off, you know what I mean? It's it's not their starter home. So what what's the uh, average square footage of most of these? Originally, they were like, in my experience, 2,000 square feet and less, yeah. you know? Right. Yeah. So they were actually fairly small in relation, certainly in relation to the McMansions and the like that oh, yeah. followed. Yeah. Uh, so when people are um, uh, thinking about buying that kind of home now, um, what kind of family is that? Well, we've seen a, a full range from uh, you know, very young families with a couple of children to uh, at, at the tail end of the baby boom. Um, I, I guess in terms of the house size, I think that's a really important aspect. These homes are a lot smaller than the houses. The, the new houses that we design for people are a lot larger than the mid-century modern homes that we renovate. And, and one of the wonderful things that, uh, that our office is, has enjoyed is to see a client learn to adapt to a smaller space oftentimes. And for example, well, in one of our favorite Hoover houses, the, the master bedroom is only 10 by 12, I mean 11 by 13 feet. Um, and it's a magnificent room with a wall of glass. It's really everything you could ever want. There's, there's peace and intimacy, uh, there's nature. Um, but I, I can't say that a client would ever ask us to design a master bedroom at that size, and probably wouldn't be advisable because I'm sure that there's a, a market. But people learn to adapt, and and um, and I think people it becomes a challenge to see how you can put. A, it's like 
It's like moving into a ship sometimes. <laughs> OK, questions? Yes. I can tell you it's cheaper to build it new, modern, rather than <laughs> rehabbing. So I think that's what they're doing. And uh, it's, you can get the efficiency in, with new construction. The rehab is it's dicey. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's as much an environmental factor at this point. Um, the people who uh, need a 4,500 square foot or 6,000 square foot house are not necessarily thinking about energy conservation in the same way that uh, <clears throat> Uh, right. folks did when they were building these houses and uh, uh, dealing with the in-floor heating systems and the like. Uh, but it's also the case that uh, most of these houses, at least in this part of the world, didn't necessarily have central air no. um, and a lot of other amenities that folks have gotten used to at this point. Yeah. yeah. So as a follow-up, um, I see a lot of prefab modern houses out there now. So is, it, is there more of a trend? If you have a, an empty lot, is there more of a trend for design from the ground up, or are prefabs making their way into the market? Or something in between. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Acorn, the tech build, yeah, the yeah. Uh, uh, kind of housing that uh, can arrive on site at least in somewhat modular form, the sort of thing that Dwell um, has emphasized for the last decade in terms of, of uh, prefabricating portions, at least, and then building up around that. Well, I, I, I can speak uh, for David here. We've, we've tried to do that, David, um, where we're trying to design to a module, and it just hasn't been able to pencil out for us. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. we've it, had the same experience in our office. Um, trying to like reach out to Benson Wood, right, or other kind of prefab systems, and maybe there's a hybrid where there's a general builder who does the fit-out, but again, it has not proven to be economical. A lot of these houses are now of an age wherein they can be uh, uh, protected by local historical yes, commissions. So what are you finding in that regard? I have wear many hats in this regard. I sit on the <laughs> Lexington Historical Commission and I'm a board of the Friends of Modern Architecture, oh. Lincoln. So um, in most of these houses are protected and to do significant changes, term substantial demolition, you'll have to go before the Historical Commission um, at least. There are also neighborhood covenants. Um, sometimes restrictions are baked into the house's deed. Um, there are a number of vehicles to preserving these homes. And I really advocate strongly that um, homeowners seek those out and, and try to, to protect this asset, you know? Um, I think it's really heartbreaking when uh, updates are not made sensitively to these homes. And I think rather than seeing these vehicles as a constraint, one can look at them as a resource to help make informed decisions. Yeah. I, with the project I did, that was really critical on the front end of it, just making sure that there was buy-in from 
um, you know, the, the appropriate people for that because it's, it's, they take it pretty seriously, which as they should. So. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Reproduced in any way afterwards? No, I don't know of any um, communities like that apart from, we were talking about the BPDA recently approved um, uh, co-housing oh, project, yeah. right? So there are some models that are coming, coming back, but um, no, I don't think it was a replicable or a replicated system, but um, the success, I think, has really hinged on like the personnel department of the neighborhood, like what kind of a governing board the homeowners collectively maintain, you know? Um. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that many of those communities were as much informal as not. Um, uh, one of the folks uh, in the front row here is uh, Fred Noyes, uh, local architect, past board chair at the BAC. Um, and Fred grew up in a house in New Canaan, uh, which was a community that uh, filled with uh, notable architects, the glass houses there, what have you. I'd be curious as to whether Fred could comment on how and whether the architects or homeowners in New Canaan have come together to try to protect the uh, fabric of that community or whether uh, it's, it's been every family on its own. Yeah, we'll get you a mic. That is a very interesting question. <laughs> and it ties directly to our earlier comments about when these houses were built. Uh, the Glass House, our own house, uh, the rest of the Harvard Five Houses in New Canaan, there was enormous pushback. It was all amusingly done very uh, civilly. It was done through poems, would you believe, in the local newspaper that one side would say, oh, you guys are building white boxes and you don't know anything about culture. And then the, uh, the young... Uh, um, uh, upstarts would say, you guys are the old fuddy-duddies, you're caught in the past. But, and that pushback has rem remained right up until now. And it is only now in New Canaan that, the, that they are trying to take advantage of what is classically probably the seed of where a lot of modern architecture really uh, emanated to the rest of the country because of Marcel Breuer and Philip Johnson, my father, and and, and so forth. So there's now a new commission that is looking at tying the houses together in the sense that you're talking about, Ted. Uh, and uh, then there are new uh, ventures. There's a new venture to make uh, um, modernist uh, October for design, a month-long period modeled maybe on, on Palm Springs or IDCA, at, at the Aspen aspect. And there are, so there are very uh, a whole series of ventures that are now beginning to look again at what uh, the great advantage of these things are. Um, I would like to actually pose another question here, and that is, what is your definition of modern? And the reason I ask that question is because we are talking about mid-century modern, the 50s, the 60s, the 40s. And in fact, if you look at what Corbusier said about it, it said that modern architecture is the response to the technological and sociological uh, aspects of the time. 
in some sense, that means modernism moves with the society. So what's being built now would be defined as modern by that definition. And in fact, if you look at it, you have to say, what are the difficulties we are facing now which were not being faced in the 50s because times have changed. There's movement of people in and out of cities, there are different cultures, there's the environmental aspects, there are material changes, there are technological uh, developments, but that would all come under the uh, definition of modern as opposed to a style, uh, colonial, uh, nouveau, uh, uh, gothic, or whatever, which is applied on top of it. So I'd be very interested in hearing what your sense of the, the time period or the aspect of modern that you're really, uh, do you think you've, you're feeling you're addressing? I was gonna, go, go ahead. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's, yeah, there's like a freshness about mid-century modernism that was very forward-looking and in the moment. And I would hate to um, perpetuate a trend of like treating mid-century modern homes like museum pieces, because that's a nostalgic um, endeavor that I don't think jibes with the mid-century modern ethos. On the other hand, there's value and I think lots to be learned from the mid-century modern homes that we have in our inventory, and I would hate to, like I say, degrade them carelessly, just, yeah, I would, I would hate to do that. I mean, that said, I lose sleep over climate change, and I, I like, actually don't lose sleep about, um, like, window details, you know? <laughs> so, so it's, it's a balance. Um, I don't have a better answer than that, Colin I, does. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I had a quote that I, from Europius that uh, I think I read earlier, but I think it kind of it addresses this question, is in designing the house, Gropius had written, quote, I made it a point to absorb into my own conception those features of the New England architectural tradition that I found still alive and adequate. This fusion of the regional spirit with the contemporary approach to design produced a house I would never have built in Europe. So I think, I, I just love that quote uh, because it speaks to modernism always renewing itself. And so uh, our firm has a project now on Moon Hill to, to make an accessory structure to one of Sarah Harkness's homes, who a, a really, truly gifted architect. Um, and it really raises the question, do you, and, and there is a historic committee uh, on Moonhill that, in a sense, wants to guide you to mimicking what's been built there. But really, is that, is that really the best uh, response? Or is there, is, there, is there new, are there new materials, new technology, a new response, a new environmentalism, a new spirit that we could bring to this project? And that's the, I think, that's what we're hoping we can do. Do, do you see that uh, new spirit emerging, for example, within the schools. And one of the things that strikes me is that uh, New England modernism is largely driven by what was coming out of uh, Gropius, uh, Harvard, and MIT, and that you can look at 
the Midwest that the influence that Saarinen had, but it was partly because of the schools around. Mm. IIT, for example, had a major influence. And so that raises the question as to whether um, the deans or the preeminent architects who are now associated or have been recently associated, Stern at Yale, for example, with particular schools are establishing, in effect, uh, a new way of looking at and thinking about uh, residential design. Hmm. And do you see that anywhere in a way that um, uh, is having an impact in the same way that these houses had an impact on New England? I guess I would answer that by I, I acknowledging, first, I think Katie spoke to it, and, and David as well, that the, the homes from that era perform generally very poorly in terms of their energy profile. And not, when you add on top of that the, the single-family homes, I think that it, we're at a time now uh, that I think the environmental concerns are at a point where I do think we have to switch to a new sort of ethos around modernism. Mm -hmm. Because so, the, the kind of focus on indoor-outdoor connection without regard to energy use, I, oftentimes, I think that's, that's something that we need to get beyond. Mm -hmm. So I was at a renovated mid-century modern ranch in Wilton Beach, Florida, two weeks ago. So just out north of Fort Lauderdale. And the owners had taken the existing structure, cut it from 2,500 feet square, uh, 2,500 square feet back to um, just over 15. They turned the back of the house into a lanai with a pool, with a solar array, going to a Tesla wall, which gave them three days of backup in the event of a storm. And they had been on the plus side of energy consumption since they moved into the house. And the Tesla's in the garage with its own Tesla, you know, recharge station. So that was kind of the, to me, following the modernism continuum, we, he started with a good bare bones mid-century modern ranch, and he's introducing those things that are of concern today. Sustainability, environment, environmental, you know, was, he did a nice job. It was a nice house. So the, speaking of uh, adapting and, and uh, resilience, uh, and also the technical aspects of repair, we've talked about that in terms of the buildings. Um, I'm curious uh, around furnishings, um, who deals with uh, the repair of these uh, unique uh, furnishings. And I raise that because it, it took me nearly two years uh, to find someone who could reconnect the two halves of uh, an Eames lounge chair. Um, <laughs> it, it turns out that there are uh, cushions that uh, have to fit uh, between the pieces. And if you take uh, uh, much modern, modernist furniture uh, to your standard, even museum quality furniture repair shop. Uh, they took a, take a look at, at modernist furniture and they throw up their hands and they say, we, you know, bring us a Federal or a, a, a Chippendale chair before you bring us uh, 
a 40-year-old Eames chair. So who takes care of the furnishings? Who repairs those? Well, if they're waiting for a Chippendale or a Federalist chair, they're probably not going to be around much longer. <laughs> that stuff uh, really is not moving. Um, but there are, they're almost like a, um, there's a community of craftsmen out there who specialize in the restoration of uh, mid-century modern furniture. Whether it be, you know, the cushions are going to disintegrate, they're probably, you know, a biohazard in of, of themselves, some of these things. Um, but uh, there, there are a number of craftsmen around who specialize in the restoration of, of mid-century modern furniture. Yeah, I know when the MFA received a gift of uh, a significant amount of mid-century furniture, one of the issues they had was around uh, the textiles. Do you, mm. do you keep the old textiles, which are sometimes badly worn, um, or do you uh, reupholster? Um, and if you do, how do you find materials that will uh, work as um, sensitively uh, to what the original design was as uh, might have been intended? Um, particularly with Knoll, right? Most Knoll original fabrics are still available. Um, Hans Wegner, a lot of those fabrics are still available. So, you know, you can, a piece that is reupholstered, period correct, and presented to us versus a piece that um, has 40 years of wear and DNA that goes with it, um, will sell better than the piece that is not restored. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and the gentleman who asked the question about <coughs> period correct or new furniture has left. And I think it's a matter of taste, you know. Um, if you get the, if, if you're a collector, you, you may start with furnishing your home with modern pieces. But um, over time, you may start replacing those with period pieces if you're so inclined. You know, a, a, a 2020, Ames lounge chair or a 1960 Ames lounge chair, it's the same chair. It, it's, it's the same chair. Um, it's, it's just a matter of preference as to whether or not you want the um, original article or something manufactured later. And what about, uh, since you uh, showed a slide of it, what about technology? Um, vinyl is coming back, that's fine. What do you do if you've got uh, uh, an old Mac amplifier and, and a Mac preamp uh, and a pair of Bose 901s and... Uh, Crank it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you find that you need some tube repair. What do you do about Oof. that? Yeah, well, yeah, they're out. Okay. Other questions or comments? Yes. to your premise on the screen a little bit. Um, are these homes invasive species or are they, in oh. fact, habitat enrichment? I, I don't think anybody has really addressed this phenomenon of what does it mean to take the inspiration of a home conceived in Palm Springs or Southern California and insert it into the climate of New England in the 40s and the 50s. I'd just be curious, uh, your commentary on that 
very um, dialectic that you pose here. And I'll, I'll extend that to uh, contemporary design uh, and manufacture. If, if a house were to burn on Marlborough Street uh, and an architect came along and said, I want to insert um, a more modern home here, or if a commercial building, uh, like the Apple building on Boylston Street, uh, were to be designed and you started to get pushback around the radical nature of the design, uh, that would be perceived as invasive. And the question is, what does the owner or what does the uh, designer do um, in that circumstance in order to move forward? The Apple store did get built. Um, and there have been a couple of insertions in the back bay uh, that reflect a, a more innovative approach. And if part of what we're talking about is thinking about design in a way that is more sensitive to energy use, uh, resilience, uh, sea level rise in some neighborhoods and the like, um, you know, where is the movement comparable to what happened in Lincoln um, that uh, moves us forward architectonically uh, to respond to the uh, new conditions. I'll go with invasive species. <laughs> um, I think it, it was uh, in reading a bit more about the Gropius house, the, uh, his neighbor, a farmer, had kind of uh, proudly proclaimed that it looked to him like a chicken coop <laughs> when it was initially built, that sort of low slope roof that, that the house had. So I, I do think that this battle over modernism is still, still being fought. I think it, we've had the opportunity to work on Nantucket, and it's that the rules are very intense there um, in terms of dictating everything from the height of the ridge to the slope of the roofs to the use of the materials, depending on what, what area you're in. So I think that, I think that battle is still uh, being fought. And I think for a lot of people, it is an invasive species. Um, and, and even from my own kind of uh, sense of it, when I'm in California, I'm in Palm Springs, I feel like modernism is the context that the Spanish revival houses are in contrast to. But still, when I drive throughout the New England landscape, particularly up through New Hampshire and Vermont, the traditional house still remains the context mm -hmm. to which the, the modern house is the outlier. Anyone else? OK. Do you folks have final comments that you want to make? Can I just make a comment to sure. this point? I think this, this question of modernism, this, this, this question of, of modernism and what's invasive and what's sort of natural to the place is 100% about the time perspective. Every one of us in this room is an invasive species in this landscape, which, you know, just 500 years ago was something entirely different. Mm -hmm. And even the, you know, the little Cape cottages were not natural to the landscape. So there's, you know, we can, we can kind of step back and take a larger perspective and just see what are these, what are these buildings doing for us? And, and, you know, how are they making us feel? 
Final comments? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, uh, yeah. I have one final thought, and that, so I wanted to kind of close the circle. I, when I finished architectural school, I worked for one of Gropius's partners, Ben Thompson, who was mentioned, um, the founder of Design Research. I was there for seven years. And in preparing for tonight, I was thinking about back about my time at that office in the, in the 80s and early 90s. And I don't recall ever having a visit out to Moon Hill, which was the iconic uh, Architects Collaborative, where Ben Thompson himself had designed three houses. At that time, those, that, this breed of modernism was out of style. We really weren't interested in it. That was a time of the battles against postmodernism. But there was a much more of a romantic uh, kind of shingle style aesthetic that had kind of swept the design community. So it, it's, it's wonderful for me to kind of come full circle to now to be at the point um, in my practice where we're actually restoring some of those homes from, the, from, from really the, you know, the masters that, that we had a chance to learn from. Um, so it shows that the that the the profession and style does is does go in, in circles, and uh, it's wonderful to be back there. So I want to thank our panelists. Our next uh, session is when. Oh, we haven't said that yet. <laughs> is it in the future? The next session is coming probably about uh, two and a half to three months from now. Um, we are still open to uh, subjects uh, that you might uh, like to see us address. We're happy uh, to pull together uh, these kinds of panels, particularly uh, where we have the diversity and, and depth of knowledge that we have today. So round of applause for our panelists and thank you for coming. <laughs>